Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Cinephile Shorts compilation. Now, this is something we've been doing every few months to give you a small taste of the kind of content we are releasing on Patreon. In this edition, we start with a conversation John and I just recorded about food and restaurants. Now, those of you who know me know this is a topic I take very seriously, and both John and I have a lot to say. Then we go way back to April of 2019 for a discussion with one of our favorite guests, Michael Vogel, on the Star Wars prequels, followed by a discussion of the positive and negative influence of fans on movies and the real problems with filmmakers who focus too much on fan service. Finally, John and I talk about the very real dangers of getting famous and ask whether this is something any of us should really wish for. Now, this is just a small sample of the stuff we are releasing on patreon.com slash the cinephiles. For just $5 a month, you get access to all of our cinephile shorts. For a little more, you can get advanced notice of some of our shows, the chance to hear your questions answered on our podcast, combined versions of our multi-part shows, and even the opportunity to suggest our next film. All of this is available at patreon.com slash the cinephiles. Your support there is what keeps the cinephiles going. And now, without further ado, I take you to the world of gourmet food, taco trucks, cooking tips, and the vast difference between how John and I think about food. 
Hello and welcome to another edition of Cinephile Shorts. I'm sitting here with my partner, Cinephile John Roca, and we are going to answer the question that came from Mike Shea, who asks, I'm a big foodie, would love to hear you guys talk about food, favorite meals, favorite restaurants, favorite snacks, things like that. Yeah. Well, Mike, I got to tell you, you actually asked this question a long time ago, and I was reading through our short suggestions, and this one just hit me hard. And I, it, it's silly to say like that I'm going to get emotional in talking about food, but but like you know, we're now eight months into quarantine, yeah, and a mo- probably the number one thing I miss is going to restaurants. I, I, it's that experience and Karen and I are both big foodies and that experience of going into a restaurant, you know, from everything from a taco truck to a high end restaurant, it's just so special to me and having not had that for eight months and having been, you know, cooking a ton over the last eight months, I've been thinking a lot about food, <laughs> you know, which also I'm a man with a weight problem. So it's not, you know, like part of this is not necessarily such <laughs> a good thing, uh, but I have a lot of opinions about food. Let me ask you this, John. What is the what is the food experience you miss the most right now? I'll be honest with you, Steve. I haven't missed anything because, uh, and I'm I'm probably a terrible person. People are gonna hate me. Lily and I have still been going out consistently to restaurants and to food places and and uh, and enjoying food. Like we've gone, I've gone to Wood Ranch numerous times during the COVID situation. I've gone to IHOP numerous times. I've picked it up to go. Um, I know those are not necessarily culinary places. Like Woodridge, but, <laughs> going like, I <laughs> uh, but I mean, like we've even driven past Jar, which is over there on uh, mm-hmm. on um, uh, Beverly, which we went to a couple times, and um, they've put uh, people outside, and you miss the ambiance of the place, uh, but you're still going to get the food, so. I haven't necessarily felt like we were missing out on anything because uh, we, you know, we cook we cook home for ourselves. But eventually, but every once in a while, we'll go out and hang out. And ever since moving to San Diego, there's nothing that's off limits to us to go and eat at. And also, there's in restaurant dining down here versus uh, Los Angeles. So um, in that way, we've been uh, satiated or satisfied. But she is a foodie like you are. So yeah. for her. I don't know 100% if she's been, but she's an introvert, so I don't know if 100% she's been missing the fact that we haven't been going to restaurants. But me, I feel like we, I haven't missed the beat, been able to go to whatever I want, Maggiano's, whatever I want to go and grab, I've been able to do so um, uh, because my tastes are limited. Uh, you know, I defer to you and, and Lily when it comes to food. I'm not a, that big of a deal. She planned all our restaurants when we visited London. Every restaurant we went to, she picked out and had done research on because they offered a certain kind of culinary experience. Uh, and so I always follow her lead. This is more you than me. It's, it's so funny because the minute I met Lindley and she and I immediately got on to talking about food yeah. and I could talk to her, you know, for hours. Yeah. We, you know, yeah. like that's totally because the, the thing of going on a trip and planning out where you're going to eat. That's exactly what I do, <laughs> you know. Like th- that's one of the exciting things, you know, is to understand, well, like, what is this place famous for? What is yeah. the best? If I'm in Philadelphia, where am I going to get the best cheesesteak? You know, that's what I want. You know, where's the best slice of pizza in New York? You know, that, that, and it, so, so first talking about restaurants, um, I, 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 the Karen, and I, one of the discoveries Karen and I had, and this came from Karen's dad is that the best place to sit in a restaurant is at the bar is that, 
you go to the bar because you, they, you serve the full meal. And in general, I, I, not that wait staff aren't great people, but bartenders are generally more fun. You have a show in front of you because there's always things happening. And if you are, it's really easy to make friends with bartenders. Yeah. And the reason is, is because the waiter or waitress, uh, the, let me say it again, the wait person will come to your table every once in a while. So they come when you sit down, they give you the menu, they come back and ask you if you want to drink, they come back and ask for your order, they come and check on you a couple of times, they bring the food, that's it. The bartender is always in front of you. So you're continually can interact with them. And if you are, and Karen and I have become experts at charming bartenders. And part of it <laughs> is that we're foodies. Part of it is that we both love good cocktails and we know a lot. And so we'll say, oh, I see that you're working with the uh, the St. George chili vodka. That's really nice. You know, Karen makes one with that, with this and this and this. Or I see that you're using this thing. And they're going, oh, you like this? Well, maybe you want to try this. And suddenly you're getting free drinks with the bartender. <laughs> you know, and suddenly, and the bartender is talking to other people and you're meeting them and you're introducing yourself. And then you come back and the next time it's like, oh, Steve and Karen are back. Oh, so good. We have this special here. I'm going to give you a little taste of it. And suddenly you're getting a little taste. Like the, the sitting at the bar is so much more fun than sitting at a table. Um, and that's part of the thing is that it's, it's, it's the interactive experience, mm. you know, and, and finding, cause to me, the, the, the good, the great experiences is the new little place. And particularly in Los Angeles, which is become in the last decade, one of the great food cities in the country. Yeah which it really wasn't. And it's because all these chefs, you know, starting with the food truck movement is all these people who had high end training went and opened their little hole in the wall place where they're doing something that is really good, but not necessarily really expensive. Mm. And so you had really interesting food and coming because it's one of the most diverse cities in the world. You go like, oh, well, this is, you know, Japanese Peruvian food, or this is, you know, someone who was trained in French dining, but is now doing, you know, Mexican tacos, you know, and like, that's so interesting. And those are exactly the restaurants that are getting killed. I mean, the, right. the, because they're the, because a big chain, well, they have a lot of money and they have ways that they can pivot, you know, but these little places, man, and I just heard a thing, I was listening to Good Food, which is a, um, a KCRW uh, show on food, which is fantastic with Evan Kleinman, who we've actually are trying to have as a guest on the Cinephiles at some point, but um, they were talking about the food industry. And here's one of the things they said, they said that the, I'm trying to think of what the numbers are, the uh, the the uh, airline industry is getting bailed out by the government. We hear a lot about that yeah. because travel industry is getting hit so hard. They employ 300,000 people and they've gotten $25 billion in government bailouts. Wow. The independent restaurant industry, not talking about the big change, just right. the independent restaurant industries, the mom and pop places, employ 1.5 million people in this country and have gotten zero in bailouts. Yep. You know, and so like th this, this, that little place down the street, that little diner, that little Chinese restaurant, that little Italian place that you love in your neighborhood, they're in such deep trouble. Yeah. And I miss those places so much, you know. And they were the first people that should have gotten the, this PPE money. They're the first people that sh that the government should have gone after instead of going after their rich buddy friends. They should have gone after the actual hardworking American people who are or for, or uh, immigrants to this country who've built yes. uh, built their their uh, you know their uh, unique uh, flavor of food and built a community built a, a strong place in the community that people can come to and enjoy that food enjoy the experience who worked hard 
They were the first, they should have been the first people the government reached out to, made it easy as hell for them to apply for these PPE loans so they could stay alive or PPE loans so they could stay alive uh, and, uh, you know, keep their uh, employees employed or at least furlough them and pay them some kind of money to keep them functioning and alive and what have you until this thing was over. And that's one of the biggest crimes. And I don't care if, you, if you're listening to us right now and you're a, you're a Trump person, uh, that's on you. And you tell me and find out uh, how you can legitimize that in your mind as an okay thing. That these other companies, because they're rich friends with, with uh, Trump over there, got bailed out. And these mom and pop stores who you people talk about as the supposed backbone of this country got completely screwed over by these policies for the most part because they didn't receive help uh, as a business to help them stay alive throughout the next year or two of this COVID situation. And what we talk about more than anything else, it's not the big corporations that keep – it's those small businesses that really – are the backbone of what we're trying to do here in this country, what we're trying to symbolize uh, in this country, and to have them go away. And they're the ones that you know that, that they talk about all the time. So it just frustrated me seeing those. I mean, driving through LA before I left, bro, there were so many restaurants I saw shutters up, closed, you know, for rent. All these places that were smaller. And Lily and I spoke about it. She's like, yeah, because she knows most of these places. She was like, yeah, these are the ones that can't stay afloat because uh, they were living essentially from month to month, staying alive. Uh, to try to uh, you know kind of get a stronger foothold uh, in the in the city as a restaurant, and unfortunately they don't have the backup financially to keep them alive, and that's that's a sad thing. Well, you're talking. I just looked up how many people are employed in this country by small businesses. This is not just restaurants, but all small businesses. Yeah, fifty nine point nine million. So that's the the small businesses are the biggest employer in this country. And the thing about restaurants that and Lindley's 100% right, of course, is that they always worked on super thin margins. Yep. And a lot of that was like they had to have 90% capacity on their weekend or they're not going to make it. And most of these restaurants don't own their real estate, so they got rent to pay. And and now that even if they're running those places that you've been going to, they maybe they're at 30% capacity right. because they have to have social distancing or they can only eat out side, well, how are they going to pay their rent? You know, it's super, super hard. And I was listening to um, some interview show and Tom Colicchio was on. He's the host of Top Chef, also one of the great, most important chefs in America. And um, he's awesome, by the way. I think he's such a just smart, practical, honest guy. And he said he was so angry. This is the beginning of the quarantine. Yeah. And he was so angry because all these restaurants were shut down and all these people that worked there weren't working. And the other thing that I don't know if you remember, but the, one of the big problems we had was food distribution at the beginning yes. of all this. Yeah. Because so many people eat so many of their meals out that there were all these companies that were set up to deliver food to restaurants, not to grocery stores. Right. And so all of the sizing and the product and how they prepared the meats or vegetables or milk or whatever, they had, to, I mean, they had to slaughter cows or, or pigs because they got too big and they couldn't sell them. And so they just threw, threw away these dead pig carcasses. Ugh. And so, and at the same time, you have people lining up for food lines. So you have out of work restaurant people, yeah. closed down restaurants, Food just food just providers that can't sell their food and people who are hungry. And Tom Colicchio said, if we had any leadership, we would open up those restaurants, give them, instead of paying people to not work, yeah. pay them to open up the restaurants, bring the food in rather than wasting it and feed the hungry people. Yeah. You know, just a basic, like, here's a plan. And the other thing, just something you said a while ago, but 
you know, people should know that when they go to that really nice French restaurant or then they go to that really nice Italian restaurant or basically every single restaurant you go to in the country, a huge percentage of the people making your food are not French or Italian. Right. They're Latino. Yep. Most of the people in this industry cooking your meals and washing those dishes and bussing those tables are Latinos, are immigrants, are people that are coming from other places. And traditionally, this is how people come to America and get ahead. Yes. One of the most basic paths. Yep. 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 So let's let's leave the world of the restaurant, John. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you we, are we've home, gone, we've gone on to a tangent from Mike yeah. Jay's question for sure. When, yeah. when, when you are home, yeah, yeah. What do you like to cook? What what are you making for yourself? <laughs> Look, my girlfriend will does not believe that I cooked before, but I was I've done well for myself to keep myself alive. I didn't have a lot of money to be going out eating all the time. So, I can cook a mean spaghetti meatballs. I do a damn good chicken marsala. Uh I've uh done uh what uh what else can I make here? I love making a steak, although she did up my steak game. By teaching me how to make steak in an iron skillet, I didn't oh, yeah. know that you could do it that way, uh, and it completely changed my life being able to make a steak in an iron skillet. And it's quick; yep. it's surprisingly quicker than you think to make a steak uh, uh, on a, a skillet. Uh, let's see. I like to do ground turkey. I like to do the ground uh, 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 ground burger. Uh, I like to make my own omelet. I discovered when I was on um, not keto, but whatever that was, the paleo, the paleo thing, uh, egg whites combined with spinach. Sliced up mushrooms, sliced up tomatoes, uh, and uh, a grass-fed ground beef turkey uh, or beef mixed in. And that was my omelet with a side of whatever I wanted to have fruit-wise. And so I, 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 I'm, I can make what I need to make to stay alive for myself. Uh, I wish I could learn how to make a Subway sandwich from Subway or a Jersey Mike's. Then I'd never leave the house probably for sure. You know, And chicken is something new that I've... I've always done chicken, uh, but I use the George Foreman grill because I'm, I'm not a foodie like you, Steve, or, or Lily. So I figure it out that way. But now I'm learning how to make chicken on uh, an iron thing or whatever in a pan in a different way uh, and figuring out, like, temperature. I had no idea that you would put the temperature inside mm-hmm. the meat. I just I cut it in. That's how I did it. I would cut it in half and, and then cook look. two sides. Yeah, I'd cook mm. two sides. So, yeah. But those are the things that I can do uh, on my own and, and, and feed myself quite well that way. What is Roca rice? <laughs> you son of a bitch. You son of, I ain't going to give you that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so for people who don't know, Roca rice was the legendary thing that I would make, uh, that my mother taught me to make um, way back when, uh, when I was you know, kind of going out on my own and doing my own thing. At least I could make rice. You know, There's a thing within the Latino culture, this idea of rice. That's a big deal. And so my mom taught me how to make this rice and how to do it and what, uh, what special ingredients to throw inside of it to give it a certain kind of flavor. And so I started – I would always make it for Thanksgiving and some people would have it and some people would not have it. But uh, it's a thing I learned how to do with certain seasonings and certain uh, – and that's a recipe I'm never giving away. <laughs> uh, but it is, it is one that I've always uh, enjoyed doing. But, uh, you know, but I don't have the time to make that rice anymore like I used to. So I've been usually just doing the Trader Joe's uh, uh, microwave brown rice uh, to do what I need to do. But, yeah, back in the old days, used to make that roca rice all the time. Special, special stuff. Yep. Um, so I love to cook. Yeah, yeah. Um, I probably like? started cooking. I was home alone a fair amount. Mm. And I like to experiment. And so the first things was the toaster oven was the first device. Yeah. 
making English muffins with cheese on them and quesadillas <laughs> in the toaster oven and everything. And then it became, cause I'm home alone. Like, well, what else could I put and combine in the thing? Like I learned how to make French toast. And it's like, well, what if I add flour to the batter of the French toast? What if I had cinnamon sugar? What if I had that? And I made horrible, horrible things. I went, had, had pesto pasta as a kid. I was like Oof. 14. One of my favorite. And I was like, Oh my God, this is the most amazing thing. And I asked, what is this? And they said, it's, you know, basil and garlic and Parmesan cheese. And so I said, oh, I can make that. Never looked at a recipe or anything. I would never <laughs> occur to me. So I got some dried basil, Lowry's garlic salt, and some Parmesan cheese out of the green can, the craft green can. And just, and it's like, I'm making pesto. <laughs> it's just probably just the most heinous food. Um, but I kept doing these things. Yeah. I think the very first thing I made that is, was good was I made Thousand Island dressing. And to this day, I believe I make the, the best Thousand Island dressing. Wow. It's evolved over 30 years. I've, I've got it just lined up just right. It's a very simple recipe. It takes you, about five minutes. Wait, we've <laughs> had, haven't we had barbecues at your house? I've never seen Thousand Island on the menu to put on the, on the burger. You're, you know what? It might, it might be. I, I, I will, oh. if I ever see you again in person, <laughs> I will make you this. Please, um, I would love to, t- to taste your Thousand Island dressing. Oh, 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 and then what I've done sort of over the last year, I, I think the next, the biggest step was Karen's mom is a phenomenal cook. They owned restaurants. She cooked oh, in the restaurants. Wow. And that's where I started to learn how to do things the right way mm. was from watching how, and, and, and it was like, oh, that's, that's kind of easy. Like, you know, to make mushroom soup or to make, you know, croutons or to make, you know, just all these like technique. I went, Oh, I'm starting to get it in the last year. Cause I do, I've always liked to cook, but yeah. in the last year I went, okay, you know what I want to do? I want to, I want to learn to up my game. And so I've picked a few things and I decided, cause I'm crazy. I think we can all, it's well established that I'm a strange person and I get a little obsessive about things. And I went, I want to make a, a real French omelet. There's a place called Petit Trois, which is Ludo Lefebvre is the chef. And mm. I ate, and I'd heard this omelet is this amazing thing. And I ate the omelet. I took the first bite. I'm like, oh my God, this is a completely different thing that I've ever had. Right. And so I go, I want to make that. I saw a video of him making it once. And then I said, that, and, it's, and a French omelet is, is technique. It's really hard to do because it's all about exact timing and exact temperature. Right. And if it's, you, it goes too long or slightly too hot, it's, it's just terrible. And so I said, I'm going to make this over and over and over and over again until I get good at it. And, wow. and now I actually just made one this morning for me and Karen. And it was, I still have not reached the level that I want to reach, but it's, pre- <laughs> it's pretty darn good. I did the same as like, I want to make a good roast chicken. And I got the recipe from uh, Sabine Nasserat, who's the f- uh, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, which is an unbelievable book, great documentary series on Netflix. Wow. And she has this buttermilk uh, roasted chicken recipe and it is great. And like, you know, so like I've gotten good at that. I wanted to learn how to make a good, a really good Caesar salad dressing. Gotten pretty good at that. I lately, like the go-to thing over the summer was gazpacho. So I was making tomato gazpacho and watermelon gazpacho. Watermelon gazpacho is the real go-to one. You know, so it's like, it's continue, And then adding like, okay, what's, like I've been thinking, maybe I should learn how to make pad thai. Like mm. that might be a fun one to make. We've made, started to make, got a really good recipe for carnitas and I make good oh. chill, you know, and chili. And I made barbecue ribs for you in the instant pot i remember yes. once yeah that was like, great like because but cause this this is the thing <laughs> this is maybe why i've been grumpy for the last couple of weeks i've gotten kind of bored 
with the stuff that I'm making, you know, because we've been here a long time. What about baking? Is that something that you haven't, like, it does it not attract you? I haven't, well, and I think part of it is because I was such, the way, because I learned how to cook without recipes. Yeah. And it was always experimenting. And so, and then what I do now is if I'm going to cook something, I frequently read five recipes. And then I combine what sounds right to me and just make it how I make it and then make adjustments like, oh, this was a little too acidic or the temperature was too high or something like that and make it different. Baking is really precise. It's like you have to have exactly this, exactly this temperature measured by the gram. And I'm not as that precise a person, you know, Karen is much better. And by the way, Karen's a really good cook too. Mm. So, so the food is generally... I, I I I think often about our kid because it's like he's being raised in this environment where he's having you know better food yeah and like then he's going to go out into the world and it's not going to be like that you know <laughs> um, well it's nothing wrong with elevating the taste buds uh, of I think of your child because then your child won't have won't default to fast food see one of the right. things that. When you're poor and growing up in this country like we were, uh, fast food is is what you you default to when you learn to default to it mentally because you, you can get a lot for a little, you know. And so still now, like this morning, I went and got myself some McDonald's and I hate myself for doing it, but it's a default thing in my brain that like, okay, this is an option I can do for five bucks and get something decent right. and it's quick. And I've got uh, 30 other things to do this morning and I'm just going to do that real quick and do that and before and move on. Um but I can p- comfortably make myself food here, you know, but there are just moments where you deep. So I, I, I sometimes uh, rue the fact that my mom nor my dad was uh, necessarily a chef or enjoyed making food. I think my dad liked making food when he did it, but it was never anything that was, he was a big deal about for him or my mom either. So I didn't grow up with that, which is probably why I watch these shows like Great British Bake Off or right. any of these reality shows about cooking and i just marvel at it like a even diners drive-ins and dives which is a fun fun show to watch sure. for me i watch and i and i'll watch this and i'll go how the fuck do you know what spice to combine with with there's so many like how would it even occur to you and in my mind i feel like it's just a it's just a you have a natural instinct for it i don't think it's it, i think cooking or baking is one of the things you can learn but to be great at it or damn good at it you have to have an actual instinctual uh knowledge of it uh to be great at it well i think it's like it's like everything else it's like all the arts it, yeah, and, yeah, and i think point. cooking is it's it's an art connected to a craft Yes. So there's a whole bunch of craft to it. And that takes practice and time and learning like the stuff. Um, but then the art is the next level, you know, so it's like, you could teach someone a bunch about and it's funny, like, this is a broader topic. But like, I think there's some things where it's mostly talent and some craft, mm. like acting, there's some people that you, you can't, you can't teach them to act, right? You know, it's like, they just can't act, you know, whereas I could teach almost anyone to edit. You know, because right. it's very technical. They might not be a great editor, but they could learn how to do all the stuff. You could teach someone how to chop the vegetables. You know, you could <laughs> yeah. teach them how to prepare these things. And you could even, if I gave you some steps to make a thing, yeah, and I showed you this is exactly how you do it, and we practiced it together a few times, you could totally do it. Right. You know, but going like, if I say tarragon, and then I say eggs, tarragon and eggs, I know go really, really well together. Those, you know, that's a spice that goes really well with that thing. So, so my brain 
because I think about food yeah, <laughs> a lot right. too much. And also because I've been to good restaurants and I watch those you know shows like you do, is that someone will say like, oh, well, we have an aged balsamic and, and some Parmesan cheese and we have this and this. And my brain goes, oh, I could do this with this. I could do that. I could find them this way. I could do that. Because I, I think about that stuff. Just as like when you are, you know, when you're doing, uh, when you're acting or when you're doing some of your shows or what you're mm. doing, you think about, who do I want to have on this show with me? Or oh, how do yeah. I want to do just things pop into your brain? Right. You know, right. Yeah, that's-, I th- that's a great point. I think every one of my shows or episodes of my shows that I host, right? Not co-host, but that I host, um, I think is its own meal. And, and I bring in the people and I, you know, pepper in the people who are coming in to ask questions live or who are sending in their questions. Like I know exactly where to drop them and what have you. And it's instinctual and how to keep it, you know, going towards an end point and cut it off before it gets to be too much uh, most of the time. So, yeah, yeah, I, I actually that makes a you make a great point, you know, well, what and, you're instinctually drawn to do. Well, and I'm sure you have a sense like you've done, I don't know how many episodes of the, of the top 10 show. Yeah, but right. Like, but like you have a sense of when it's working and when it's not and yes. when it's time to move on and when it's time to expand or when you've gone on it because you've done it a lot. Or kill know? a show and bring in a new one. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Like we've the, done with the uh, Golden Ticket. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. We killed, uh, we killed Thunderdome. Right. Uh, and then we killed the Relist. Right. Because both of us felt like we uh, and it's usually me first saying like to Matt, Matt, this is run its course. It's boring. The second I get bored with doing anything, I seek to spice it up by either killing it and starting something else or somehow adjusting it or changing it. So it has new life, you know, and so I'm always like even my channel. I I mean, yeah, my channel is like my kitchen. And right. I'm like, okay, what's working? Okay, the morning show is doing great, but it's not doing this. So I might kill that so I can cre- uh, create something else that'll take its spot. Horror movies. I have a natural desire to start maybe learning some more about horror movies. Why don't I start a show about that? Will anybody listen? I don't know. So it's those things that I'm playing around with and eventually finding what, what works. Like the politics show, had no idea it was going to be as, 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 as seen as it is. It is right now, viewers-wise, per episode, my highest viewed a show per episode on the channel. It's incredible. I had no idea. Uh, and so it's just like I tried it because it was a natural instinct and see what happens. So I'm sure chefs are that way. They're going to try something and see if it works. Or I'm sure you've been that way in the kitchen. Steve, I'm going to try a certain combination of spices or flavors or what have you and see if it comes off uh, and, and works, you know? Well, first of all, you're, I want to learn about horror movies. I'm, maybe I'll do a horror show. That's me going, I want to learn how to make a French omelet, you know? Yeah. And, and 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 the thing too is like and and I've improved. So if you ate some of my experiments 20 years ago, right. there was a there was a 30 or 40% chance it was inedible. You yeah, know, like yeah, yeah. just like there were things where Karen and I are eating dinner and just like shaking our heads going like this is this is terrible. Like just off there it's very rare that I make something this terrible. I I miss. You know, now it's like, oh, it's slightly overcooked, or I, right. I should have done this, or you know, the things like that. But but uh, my skill level's gone up. It's fun. It's funny. If you are, I, I know I've talked to you about this guy before, mm. uh, David Chang, who is the Mamofuku guy. Yes. He has his podcast. His podcast is all over the place now because of, of COVID. Like they do, they do, they do a bad movie club. So they did the last dragon and they did best of the best because he's Korean American. And that, that those things were really special to him growing up. By the way, he grew up in Northern Virginia. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, okay. so he might have grown up right near you. He's a, he's a little younger than you and I, but not too okay. much. Um, anyway, his show is so he's continually having conversations about is cooking an art or a craft. And he because he is a person. He's a fascinating person. And his autobiography just came out, which is really good. Because yeah. um, he's one of the another one of the most important chefs in the United States in the last 20 years. Uh -huh. um, and but he is continually rethinking how you do everything. He's like, wow. if you get good at a thing, you got to throw it out and you got to think of a new way to do it. Uh, and I think, I don't know if you ever listened to it. I sent you a podcast where he had on a sports guy because he's on, uh, what's his name? Bill Simmons is. Oh, yes. Okay. They're buddies. And he's a huge, David Chang is a huge sports guy. And so they were talking about the last decade, which you would know way more than me, changes in strategy at the NFL. And oh, yeah. how they're, you know, the passing game has changed and wh whether or not they're punting and things like that. Yeah. And where those changes came from. And he was comparing all of them to changes he's making in kitchen, in professional kitchens and how the team works together. And, you know, what are you trying to do and what's the goal? It's, it was really, it's really interesting. Also because, and also you're driven by the competition of other teams. Like you're driven by the competition of other chefs. Oh, like, yeah. you know, I'm sure you, he keeps tabs on what the great chefs are doing or the good chefs because his contemporary greats are doing uh, and being like, oh, wow, and trying it out and be like, damn it, I didn't think to do some of that. Okay, that inspires me to just like in the, in the NFL. It's like, okay, I saw this offense. Oh, now I've got to create this new kind of defense to counter that offense or create an exactly. offense to counter that defense. It's that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Hey, look, and I'm watching, I watch other YouTube channels and, and to try to get me ideas or try to see what, what the, what people are watching. So I can start kind of doing my, my version of that, you know? So yeah, I get uh, it. Yeah. What, what, one other thing, and I know this has gone long, but I have a lot, I had a lot of feelings about yeah, food, yeah. obviously. One of the things that makes all this so sad that's happening right now is I really think we were living in the best of all culinary times oh. by far. And because and, if you looked at, like, if you went to a fancy restaurant from basically 1880 until 2000 mm -hmm. or maybe 1990, let's say, okay. odds are it was French. Like French food was fancy food. That's what it was. And everything else, Italian food, Mexican food, Chinese food, they're all, and, they're, and there's cultural things. Like if I ask you, what's more expensive, a Chinese, Chinese food or Japanese food, what would you say? Japanese food. A hundred percent. What's more expensive, Mexican food or Italian food? Italian food. Yeah. Why? Well, just because I don't see an Italian, uh, I don't see an Italian Chipotle. <laughs> I don't see uh, other things like that. It, and it, I, it, it seems it's, to me there's more ingredients in the stuff that you're making no, Italian food than it's, it's Honestly, it's pure racism. I mean, really. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, no, it is. It, well, and it's classism is that is that it's the ingredients could be just as high end. You could put just as much time and just as much effort into any of these cuisines. Right. And what's happened is, is that first thing happened is Italians started to become fancy food. And then suddenly there was a place to get high end Chinese food or we discovered sushi. And then right. all these things started to mix. And it used to be if you went to an Italian restaurant, the menu was the same. It was spaghetti and meatballs. There was white, red and white checkered tablecloths. There was garlic bread. There oh, right, was, yeah. You know, it was, it was the same food. And it was a basic, like, uh, southern Italian specific region thing. If you went to a Mexican restaurant in, all throughout the United States, it was the same food. If you went to, you know, everybody, so you went to a Chinese restaurant, you would order the salad, having the mushu pork and the yeah. sweet and sour pork and the whatever the things were, they were the same. That's not true now. Now you go to a restaurant, you go, what do they make? 
Right. Because right. everybody is trying things and that competition that you're talking about, mm. you know, it's like, oh, I, when I open, I'm not just opening an Italian restaurant, I'm opening my restaurant. Mm -hmm. It's going to be specific to my vision of how I'm going to make stuff. Yeah. And that's all the stuff that's under threat right now. This is what I find fascinating because when we look at restaurants, she looks at the menu first to see what kind of things they offer. I look at the menu to go, okay, where's the chicken? Where's the steak? Where's the end? What can I get from that? So for her, it's about the offerings. For me, it's about what's available under the categories, you know? And so she'll decide if a restaurant's worth going to, depending on the things that they offer that are unique. Right. Uh, and that's I'm just like, thing. yeah, right. And I'm just like, well, what can I eat if we go? Right. So is it, that's the difference. Yeah. Well, because this is because whatever gene on our DNA, yeah. the you you're for you, food is basically sustenance. Yes, it is. I, I want to enjoy the experience, but it's of sustenance. Course. Yes. But yes. it's like this is just this thing I have to do. And for uh Lindley and I and for Karen, it's the goal. It's yeah. the what is it because you know, I want to go to a restaurant and have eat a thing I've never eaten before. I want to have this new experience. Absolutely. <laughs> You'll never, you rarely catch me doing that. Rarely. No, I know. <laughs> you know. Oh, it's terrible. It's She goes crazy about it, but I'm just like, yeah, whatever. That's why she likes when we go out to places in other countries, she likes to pick restaurants that will force me to choose things that I wouldn't normally eat to try. So have and you she's had a thing? A thousand percent right. Well, that's my question. Yes. Was, what was a thing? Did you eat a thing that she made you eat that you would never have eaten that you just went, oh, my God? I, Steve, I cannot remember, but I can tell you the experience, which is we went to this place that was in a little bit of a rougher section of London. And, of course, Lily will make fun of that because she thinks she grew up on the rough streets of life. But, like, she, it was a little bit of a rougher area of London, which kind of was a little bit scary to me. It wasn't a lot of lights. And it was essentially like this heavy metal chef place. Mm. And they made these incredibly insane dishes uh that i had never tried before there was like this black thing that was meat or whatever and it was combined with some other spices and i, I have no idea if it was soylent green or whatever it was <laughs> it was just so strange with the stuff from snowpiercer it was just so fascinating and we happened to be sitting next to two people who were running a food blog and that night they were ordering everything, everything. on the menu and videotaping themselves on a live feed trying out everything that was on the menu and it was a it was a small place there was only maybe room for 15 to 20 people there there was th three tables at the top and two tables at the bottom and with four people that could sit and uh you know the food that was there it was all so so she ordered for me knowing my palate because i didn't right. know what to order and we got a bunch of things she was a thousand percent right. I wish I could tell you the name of it. It has some rock and roll heavy metal name, but it was in this distinct area of London. And I just was blown away by it and loved the food. And so I'm always open to the new experience, but I default to what I know right. best. You well, know? you need a guide and it sounds like you have a good one. I, I'm know? very lucky in that yeah. way. Yes, true. Yeah. Someday... <laughs> When all this is over, you and Lindley and me and Karen are going to go out to dinner yeah. and and you will not be picking where we go. You can pick one, too. I'll totally no, go to Woodridge I'm, with you. I, no, no, we've done that already. I'm happy to be in 
in y'all's hands, and I won't order the chicken tenders. I promise. And and I would <laughs> and I would never make you eat something that you wouldn't. You know what I mean? I would never right. go like, here is the calves' brains, John. <laughs> the monkey you, brains. You know, I'm not going to give you that. But, but to get some yeah. good stuff that was sort of interesting, yeah, like I yeah. for my birthday, I ordered because we we've been trying to you know order takeout from places, yeah. and it's yeah. such a mixed bag. And I ordered. I won't name the restaurant. A place that I had heard about quite a bit. That's a very unique Japanese place that's like this is the kind of place that would be in Japan and they're not cool. dumbing it down for Americans at all and a couple of the things we ordered were really good and a bunch of it was like yeah this is too funky for me oh like, wow. I, yeah it's like I, I don't yeah. dig that it was way out there <laughs> um and so it's like uh birthday meal fail <laughs> well no well it's about the intention not the result is it it's about like the experience. sometimes it's about the result <laughs> okay fair, <laughs> if, I, fair. if i were doing this all the time then that fail would be fine but like right. uh, okay it's my birthday we're gonna do something different and special yeah well, yeah yeah. Um, well, Mike, thank you so much uh, yeah, for Mike. the suggestion. Obviously, I had a ton to say. And I didn't <laughs> think John had a lot to say, too. Um, hopefully, we'll all be out eating all the food we want to eat soon. But in the meantime, thank you, Mike, for your suggestion. Thank you, all of the patrons, for all of your support. You are keeping us going. And uh, I think we'll see you next time with some good food on another Cinephile Short. High ground redeems everything. Hey, so we're on a uh, Cinephiles we short, so I just oh, turned no. the mic on. We were briefly discussing the Star Wars prequels. Oh, God. I only saw, I saw Phantom Menace several times, but only saw the other two once. Okay. I cannot tell you which one I think is the worst and which one is the best, but Roka has strong feelings about that. Well, yeah. I mean, I'm not a fan of uh, the first one. What's the first one, Phantom Menace? Phantom Menace. Oh, I absolutely hate it. It's so boring. It's it's more boring than Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Rings, like, if that's possible. It's so boring. <laughs> it's so boring. And Fellowship of the Rings is my favorite of the Lord of the Rings movies. The so. It's really good. You're both insane. The midichlorian stuff is ridiculous. Agreed. Yeah, the agreed. only thing that's good in that movie is the ba is the battle at the end, the battle fight at the end. Everything else is absolutely ridiculous. The pod, I hate the pod racing. I don't like anything to do with Anakin at all, and uh, him flying that uh, fighter or whatever, all that kind of Horrible. stuff. All of it just bores me it's to a tears. Good thing I and, of course, Jar Jar. It's a good thing I haven't watched it recently because if I had watched it recently, I could go 20 minutes on everything that doesn't make sense. Oh, the yeah. whole structure of the movie makes no sense. There's no right. reason for anything to happen. All the races. Phantom Menace is horrible. Yes. Uh, I think Attack of the Clones is the most horrible. What? Um, you and, think that's the most horrible? And I think Revenge of the Revenge of the Sith is horrible. So, so we have it's like it's literally horrible. Like it's not. It's not even arguing. <laughs> like when I say like when I say that I think Phantom Menace is maybe the best out of the three. Yeah. It's not because I'm defending anything. I actually agree with everything Roka said. I yeah. actually just think it's degrees of horribleness, and I think that people are fooled into thinking Revenge of the Sith is good because the things that you were waiting to happen for three movies finally happen. happen. Mm -hmm. But it actually happens just as horribly as everything else in the movies does. Yeah. And actually, the the and the th the only saving grace of the world of the prequels at all, if for anyone who's interested, because I actually quite like that universe of the prequels, is actually Clone Wars the Animated Series, which took right. everything oh, yeah. horrible oh, right, yeah. and made it all not horrible. Yep. I agree so, with that. So it's funny. I saw Phantom Menace. The first time I saw it, I was accidentally really high. Um, <laughs> whoops a daisy because, I've heard, I've, I, I know this story. Yeah, because someone had made some brownies that who had never mm. done that before, and they were very there were, strong. There were too many midichlorians in the brownies. There were a lot of midichlorians. And then I saw it again because I was invited to 
back when I was doing like quality control on video, yeah. like a demonstration of new DLP digital projection where they did side by side with film. So I saw it twice in the theater. I remember I saw, um, Wait, Clash of... Wait, what's it called? Attack of the, the Clones. Attack of the Clones. Not Clash of... <laughs> Clash of the uh, Titans. No. I'm down with that. <laughs> um, and in the theater. I have almost no memory of it. And then I saw... I remember going to Revenge of the Sith at the Arclight. Mm. And I remember walking out and just being like, oh, it's all over. Like, mm. like, like I had even held out hope that somehow... It was going to redeem itself, and it just so doesn't. And that is why I do think, and then we'll talk about what we're here to talk about. That's why I think that having lived through the prequels and lived through my emotions on the prequels, when people argue about J.J. this, Ryan Johnson that, here's what Last Jedi did right, here's what Force Awakens did right, here's what they did wrong, here's what Rogue One did right, Solo could have been this, and it could have been Lord Miller, and all the things that people argue about and get so upset about in the Star Wars fandom, I feel like that old man on a rocker on my porch going... You guys don't know disappointment. <laughs> I, I'll give you disappointment. Like I, I, I am so thrilled for everything that's happening in Star Wars right now. Even though I think every single one of these movies has their flaws, flaws. and their problems mm, and things yeah. don't work, except maybe Rogue One because it's pretty fucking perfect. But I thoroughly uh, agree. But uh, but in general, I'm just like, yeah, like I'm just happy to be a Star Wars fan because yeah. we've we made it through the dark times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and the, the mind-blowing thing is getting into the, this thing that I've gotten into over the last few years, this fear, there's a lot of people who love the prequels. Yep. They grew up on them. Yep. This is what they know Star Wars to be, and they make fun of the original trilogy as outdated, as boring, as uh, terrible graphics, uh, special effects, rather, those kinds of things. They, they push back on them that the original trilogy isn't as good. And then that's, but their complaints now come because they love the prequel so much. Their, their prequel experience, our prequel experience is their experience with the new Star Wars yeah. films. And that's mind blowing to and, me on so many levels. And yeah. here's the real mind blowing thing is. There's going to be a group of fans. Oh yeah, who love these movies? Who are going to say live and die yeah. on Force Awakens, Last Jedi, and Rise of Skywalker. Yeah. And hate everything that comes after that Probably. and make fun of the originals and the prequels. And the prequels. Well, this yeah. is the great thing of about film is that in one sense it's all subjective. Of course. And in another sense it's not. And certain <laughs> things are better than other things. True. And some people are wrong. There you go. That wow. is that, and that is and that is why we are here today. I cannot co sign we'll that. Talk but about I like the Ewoks. The Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, uh, I want to thank all of our patrons for, for listening to our spontaneous cinephile shorts. We appreciate all your support. And we will be back at some random time yeah. later when I hit the record button because things had just gotten interesting. Hello, Patreons, and welcome to another edition of Cinephile Shorts. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a voiceover artist, uh, writer, producer, host, and critic over at Collider. Are the intros really necessary on Patreon? I guess you're right. We don't. Matt hates to do it when we do it on Top Ten. <laughs> Matt goes, I'm not saying my name. Everyone knows who I am who's on Patreon. And I was like, all right. I'll all right. John. That's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fair point. Yeah. Um, so maybe going forward, we won't do it. It just started coming out of my mouth. Couldn't stop it. Well, excuse us for being gentlemen. I don't think there's anything wrong with introducing ourselves. So, so that's a fair point. Could be a new patron. You know I, was, I remember thinking about I used to the, the Daily Show with Jon Stewart was yeah. one of the greatest shows for me ever on television. And he would always say, my name is Jon Stewart. Right. And it's like, we all know who you are. We're watching the show. You never know. Um, you never know. Um, I mean, they always said, here's Johnny on The Tonight yes. Show. Yes. Got to know who that is. 
Um, but we digress. <laughs> the reason we're talking right now is just a moment ago, we were recording our introduction for Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, which we were re-releasing with one of our f- favorite guests, Scott Mance. Mm-hmm. And the subject came up of fan service. And while I'm sure this is something you've talked about quite a bit, whether it's on Collider mm. or on Geek Buddies, this is something I've been thinking a lot about, and I don't have your microphone all the time. <laughs> and so I had some thoughts about it. So I thought we'd take a minute to make a cinephile short about this idea of Absolutely. fan service. Mm-hmm. This is, And it's interesting that because it really relates to Star Trek. Because I believe that Star Trek is the first time that the fans, the power of the fans pushed Hollywood to do things that Hollywood wasn't going to do. Yeah. I mean, non, there's always been fans. So like way back to the perils of Pauline or to Charlie Chaplin, or there were fans that idolized these people, but they were really directed towards a specific actor or star. Hmm. You know, there wasn't a thing like Star Trek where they kept the show on the air in the first place with a letter writing campaign. They brought it back with the animated series. Hmm. They made their own merchandise. They created these conventions. They wrote fan fiction, and there was so much pressure. They got the fans, got NASA to name the very first space shuttle the Enterprise. Yeah. I mean, that's fan power like had never been seen and and because of that we get star trek the motion picture and because of that we have the every other star trek show and all of that all because of the power of the fans and i think that's the moment and this comes of course after with star wars and at the same time as the first superman movie and then we you know 10 years later we have the batman tim burton batman movie and i think that's when hollywood slowly but surely goes oh there's this built-in market that w- if we can please, yeah. we can make a lot of money. Yeah. And that brings us to where we are today, where the power of the fans is just huge. Both positive and negative, yeah. That's what I wanted to talk about. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, the fans serve... I mean, studios understand that they need to please the fans. Sometimes we've seen studios err too far on that uh, desire to please the fans. And other studios do an incredible job pleasing the fans and also pushing the boundary of the genre and pushing the uh, uh, story of these uh, superhero characters in a way that's interesting and fun. And I'm talking about Marvel with Kevin Feige. And right. recently with this, with DC, you can see them doing it with uh, whatever you feel about Aquaman. It certainly made over a billion dollars. Wonder Woman was uber successful. Well, we see it happening with Shazam. And now we see the Harley Quinn trailer that's come out uh, that looks interesting. And the Batman's being redone again under Matt Reeves' guidance for Robert Pattinson. So with so great casts that have been announced for that. So... This is all happening to try to keep the fans sated and satisfied, but also expand their um, abil- expand what they want uh, in a new and exciting way. I think the the thing, and I'm trying to think of the best way to express it, is there is a there are two poles, mm-hmm. and one is just I'm just making the movie. Screw you, fans! I'm going to do what I want to do. Right, and that doesn't maybe doesn't work that way, particularly when we've had. And in the earlier days of comic book movies where there was a talking down to the fans, they right. thought the fans were stupid. And so they made, well, comic book characters are stupid, so let's make stupid movies. And that's a, a really bad system. And the, the Schumacher Batman's being like a good example right. of sort of just really being kind of insulting to us as fans. They were kitschy and not in a good way. Yeah, not in a good way at all. And then on the other poll, it's like, uh, I got to make sure to do every single thing to make those fans happy. And you end up with a movie that is just a mess. Disjointed. Disjointed. And that doesn't service its own story. It doesn't, you know, and that to me, like Star Trek Into Darkness has all sorts of things Mm -hmm. that they think that I as a Star Trek fan are... Are, they're giving to me yeah. by bringing back Khan and reversing the Spock Kirk thing and all that stuff. 
and it didn't work doesn't work at all mm. like it really fails and so trying to figure out like what this is and here's here's an analogy maybe this isn't a good analogy but that that, that occurred to me um have you heard of the book what would google do uh no this is i think it's jim jarvis it's a technological technology technology book that came out maybe seven or eight years ago okay and what it is basically doing is contrasting the technology development process of Apple and of Google. And here is the Google process, which is we're going to make a thing and we're going to kind of half make it. We're not going to finish it. We're going to leave it a little open-ended. And then we're going to see and we're going to put it out there for free usually. So Gmail or yeah. whatever, whatever Google product goes out. And then we're going to see what people do with it. And if people start doing with it, something with it this way, we'll develop more in that direction. And if people start doing something that way, we'll develop more in that direction. And Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, those all work on the Google model. We're going to give you some tools. We're going to see what you do with it. And then seeing what you do, we're going to develop more. Then we're going to see what you do. Then we're going to develop more. And it's going to go back and forth. Yeah. And so there's sort of a collaboration with the fans, if you will, of creating the thing. That's not how Steve Jobs built Apple. Mm. Steve Jobs says, if you knew what you wanted, uh, he, he basically said, you don't know what you want. I have to tell you what you want. Yeah. I'm going to make something so great, and it's going to teach you to use it. Apple, although, the, of course, they do listen to their users to some degree, but they're also, I'm going to take away stuff you want. Mm. I'm not going to give you this button. I'm not going to give you that. I'm going to show you something so great. Because you didn't know you wanted an iPhone. Right. You know, you didn't know that you wanted an iPad or an Apple Watch or AirPods or all those Apple products. They're like, we are the smart people. Why would I listen to a bunch of rubes to help <laughs> you design my products? I'm much smarter than you. That's why we exist. Yeah. And to me, that's sort of the poles of fan service versus I am the artist creating the thing. Right. And I think striking the balance between these things is the is what's important. Well, what's fascinating is that fans gravitate to both sides. You know, totally. You know, obviously the Apple was very successful that model, the Jobs Union, and then the other side, uh, Google's very successful doing what they did. So it's like these different points of views um, can work if you have the right people in charge. Yeah, right. And that's what it always comes down to to me. Fan service is fan service. It's always going to be there. People want to be satisfied. It's been around since the dawn of time, I think. I'm sure someone sitting in a cave was like, you know what? You know what help you tell this story even better? Or, uh, well, I, I, we've heard you tell this story, but, like, uh, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you bring in the, And there's jokes in Shakespeare and love. Where's the dog? Where's the dog in right. this? Right? It's that fan service. you got to satisfy the fans uh, in a certain way. That's what they've come to expect. But the smart directors and the directors I gravitate to are the directors who understand and love the material because to me that's number one and then know how to deliver fan service in a way that's new and exciting and once again you didn't know you wanted it this way so the combo of both yeah is always to me is the best way to go about it um and you have to have the right people in charge to be able to do it um look ryan johnson in the last jedi that's a, a perfect example of a guy who took a genre that had basically been following this model and completely turned it on its head Without losing the tenets of the uh, the genre of that, I'm sorry, the franchise, um, and turn it on side without losing that, but trying something new. And there are many fans who love Last Jedi. I mean, love it right. to pieces for what it does. And I will argue that the last hour or so, hour and ten minutes, is some of the best Star Wars I've ever seen. Visually, it, I yeah. think it's there's stuff that is the number one stuff I've ever seen in Star Wars. Film. Certainly, certainly, that's, right. that's probably Ryan right now. Yeah, he's calling us. All right. Uh, 
We're just going to let that ring. That's you know, fine. this is the thing on Cinephile Shorts is I'm not going to edit this. You're going to listen <laughs> to my phone ring in my office, and that's just what it is. But J.J. with Force Awakens, right? J.J. got everybody back on on board. That was a pure fan service movie. Yeah. Uh, and it was about bringing everybody back to the feeling of the original trilogy. Certainly accomplished that. Two and a half billion dollars certainly proved Yeah, it's one of the biggest selling movies of all time. Right. Yeah. But which film is actually going to be remembered? It I think Force Awakens Force Awakens will be will be beloved. I think Last Jedi will be uh revered. And there's a difference in my opinion. Hmm. So uh, I think that's the thing. I think Last Jedi will be studied. I don't think anyone's studying Force Awakens. It's a funny thing, is that well and this is so first of all, and we've said this on the Cinephiles many times. Yeah. Filmmaking is hard. Yes. It is one of the most difficult art forms there is as a person who teaches students. And basically, most of my students don't make good films. <laughs> you know, like that's it's it's and, and and you can see them come up against it. These smart, hardworking people who tried really hard. And I'm sitting, I was just literally in post with something yesterday. And some of them are looking at this film. They spent a lot of time and a lot of money on it and realizing. This might not work. Yeah. It's really, really hard. But it's what's interesting to me about both of those films is the the fans the most fan service elements to me in Force Awakens are not what make Force Awakens good. Mm. And the reasons in Last Jedi that it doesn't succeed is not because he's being daring. It's just because that plot point doesn't move me that much. Right. You know what I mean? Like you kind of went off the rails in terms of my interest yeah. in the film. Like even though the filmmaking in terms of the artistry of it is like unbelievable. Yeah. You know, and, and, and just we literally are just came off of doing Star Trek the motion picture and reintroducing our episode on Star Trek the Wrath of Khan. Mm -hmm. And that's another example of like, what is making this work and what is not making this work? And anyone who's made a film knows that it's really delicate what actually is you're watching like, oh, I'm being moved by this character. Mm -hmm. And the the filmmaker wants to just, well, follow what's moving me. But the fan service part of you is like, well, if I follow that, am I going to piss off the fans? Right. But, and here's another thing, because I think your Shakespeare in Love example is really good, is that there's a thing, again, I talk about it in my classes of like, Okay, you have this this thing in your film. How many people need to get this thing? Mm. And there's some things in the film like that I have secretly poisoned the water in your drink and that because I'm trying to kill you because I hate you, which everyone knows from listening to Cinephiles, is that <laughs> is that if that's the plot of the movie, well, I need everyone in the audience to know that. Right. But if I make some line and it's a it's a very subtle reference to like, you know, the the silent film Nosferatu. Well, I only need 10%. Of, if 10% of the audience gets that line, that's yeah. fine. The, some of the references in Shakespeare in Love are, if you're a Shakespeare person, you're like, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And most of the population, if they haven't you know, gone to theater school as you and I did, they aren't going to get that reference. That's totally cool mm -hmm. because the movie, the story, and the characters right. are working 100%. It still works without the Exactly. Right. If you're doing fan service and you're hoping that this little reference to – Captain America's shield that came in issue 327 or something is going to please the fan and you're putting all your effort there. Well, you're only going to get a very small percentage to get that moment and the rest of the people are going to go, huh? Yeah. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't help. Yeah, I know. And, and that's the thing that I uh, come back to over and over again, especially over the last few years, is you've seen the power of fandom really explode and right. cause uh, people to leave social media, yeah. uh, cause other people to hunt for it and go and try and be that thing and be part of a franchise so they can have 
the connection with the fans. Uh, you know, John Boyega recently got in trouble for a comment he made in an interview about the idea of fandom and uh, social media and all of that. And, you know, it's still a thing that we are all processing as fans, but also um, we're processing as people who do what I do. Which well, that's what I was going to say. Lighter. This is yeah. your world. You navigate that all the time. I don't read YouTube comments. I really stay away from them. I, I have seen them destroy people right in front of me as they read them. I've seen them grow embittered. I've seen them grow despondent. I've seen them get like really just upset about it. I've seen it, and especially in the slowdown, I've seen it shut people down. Right, uh, and I certainly had my battles with it when I first started out in the Schmodown, reading the terrible comments that I was getting on YouTube from fans who wanted to be a part of the game, uh, which you don't understand at first, you know. And then you, I've seen other people who have no concept of professional wrestling walk into it and get destroyed, and that is fan service. These are fans who want you to do a certain thing or right. want it to be a certain way. So it's a microcosm of what you see in way larger th- franchises like Star Wars and Marvel and DC and and, and Star, certainly Star Trek. Um, and you could argue that with motion picture and with con. Motion picture is swinging for the fences. It's it's some bold choices in motion picture that don't always necessarily feel like Star Trek. But I love it for that. Right. Because I think it's still, because, because I think it's purely done. I agree with you, Last Jedi. I think that's a studio coming in and making some adjustments to Ryan, what Ryan was trying to do to try to kind of bring it back into the overall feeling of Star Wars. But you couldn't stop uh, what his overall point was with that movie. So then the fans go and, and love that movie. Then you have a third movie that comes out, and you're like, well, where's this fall? And I, obviously, I, I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to talk. I can't. Uh, I, but in my opinion, there was too much of the right. fan service, uh, and that can weigh you down. You know who knows? Well, and this is the thing: is like uh, thinking about Twitter and social media and stuff. Is that you've got the, you know, again going back to Star Trek, you have these letter writing campaigns, yeah, and that there was certain people, and there's a woman whose name I forget, but she was one of the main people who started the big letter writing campaigns. And so, if you say like, okay, so there's some random fan in you know Des Moines, they have the power of one letter, one voice, and then there's the woman who organizes the campaign, and she's more powerful than them, but not by that much, right? You know. As opposed to today, is there a certain because of the way social media works, mm. there's certain voices who can instantly create a whole bunch of controversy about a thing. And so those people have outsized power. And the studios, as you know far better than me, because this is the you know, this is the waters you swim in, yeah. is that there will be not even the trailer or the teaser, but there will be the teaser about the teaser coming up and there will already be opinions about why this movie is terrible and the thing is and you saw it like with sonic would be an example but but one that were probably good thing but but where the studios are looking oh my god what is the twitterverse gonna say about the teaser to my teaser that's coming out next week and what does that mean in terms of how we should change the film and it's like that ain't a way to make a movie. That's that's the world now. That is yeah. absolutely... I mean, I was talking to some people over um, at... I think it's Universal uh, when I went to see Cats. Uh, a couple of people who were aware of what's going on with that movie. Tom Hooper skipped the junket because he is still adjusting things based on fans' reaction right. to the trailer, to the trailers uh, and to the scenes and sequences that were released. Still adding fur to characters, still deciding the edit of the movie. And he said to me, what you see tonight, this film comes out next week. What you see tonight might not be the actual final cut of the film. And we are a week away from its release. I was blown away by this uh, and and just shocked by it all. But that is fandom. Fandom is, yeah. is 
current, constant, and always on top of your stuff. So fans are great. The letter writing campaign, that's the pure, fun, good totally. thing fans can do. But on the other side, the the toxicity that we see now in these message boards, and it isn't everybody. I want to make it clear. And I don't think it's fanboys. It's everyone, male, female, and female fans. I want that very, very clear. Male and female fans are commenting with some really tough, toxic, vitriolic comments because they feel an ownership of, and that's the genesis of fan service, is this ownership of of the franchise or property that you are a fan of. You want to be satisfied because you feel, I've given my money, my time, my effort to this. Why aren't they doing that? Sports is not that different. People right. feel a people have the same kind of fandom, toxic, toxic fandom about their teams. I spent years watching this team. Why aren't you making my team better? Why aren't you paying for the players? I want to be here. Right. Why are you picking this coach? It's all connected. It's funny. As often happens when we do the show, that was so good. And I had like five things come up that I no, want to say. Yeah. So, so the sports thing, just I, I'm going to go through them in an order that hopefully will make sense. Okay. The sports thing, uh, I, the one advantage sports has, at least their numbers. You know, at least someone has their rushing yards. Absolutely. You know, like that you could say, like, well, that guy is a good rusher. Yeah, you know, right. like we could say that. Statistics. But I, my guess is, is that uh, uh, fantasy baseball and all those things have added to that because people have increased ownership yes. because that's their player who they follow. So they have a, you know, a, 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 a more of a connection to that right. thing. Um, in terms of filmmaking, um, there, are, there are two things that have to happen. And, and it's interesting that you talk about Ryan Johnson, or not Ryan Johnson, uh, who's director of Cats. Oh, yeah, Tom Hooper. Tom Hooper still changing it is that one of the things that's really, really important is you do have to screen your film and you have to watch it to mm-hmm. people. And you have to feel emotionally what you're, they're, they're feeling in the audience because it's going to change the way you edit the film. That's an incredibly important step in filmmaking. It isn't because you become so myopic in the editing room because you've seen it a thousand times that you need to just sit and watch it with an audience and feel it. And that really is an important step. But what's happening there, because people watch the the fucking trailer yeah. and they're going well i gotta change this because of people's response to the trailer that's the opposite that's people who are not emotionally experiencing the film and the other thing too is that one of the jobs as an editor and as a filmmaker that gets really really hard this is super hard is that you've seen them you've read the script you've worked on the movie for three years and now you're going to watch it and you have to try to turn off everything you know about the film and all of and just experience it that is a really really difficult skill yeah. and the fans coming in they're the opposite they are coming in with all their build they're not coming to experience the film they're coming in with all their stuff yeah their expectations you know, all their expectations how they feel about the characters whatever comics they read whatever it is and so taking and now they watch the trailer and then they give you a whole bunch of vitriol yeah. and you go oh i got to go change my very delicately made movie now cats might be terrible it is <laughs> but that's what I i've heard saying that yeah but you know but it's a, in some senses that's a bad example but this process isn't good and the other thing i think the sonic is the most is the real example yeah that, that they spent the, that much money to change it to change yeah. it well and the thing is filmmakers get it wrong this filmmaking is oh, hard all the time but fans aren't necessarily a bunch of yahoos aren't just necessarily the people that are going to help you make it right right you know like that isn't you know the it, Sometimes maybe they can help you fix a little bit of a thing. The uh, the other thing, and I'm, I'm not going to make this political in any way, but oh. the other thing that occurs to me is that part of this is just the nature of social media. Yeah. Because if you look what's happened to our politics, 
That's the same thing. It's vitriol. It's ownership. It's you have to do it my way. It's small voices becoming big voices. Mm -hmm. It's things like teasers and trailers and things like sound bites and, you know, little tiny moments that can completely shift how we feel about a thing. And all of that is unhealthy for us. Well, I think it's always funny, too, when you're on YouTube and occasionally I do jump in there. I don't read the YouTube comments consistently, but every once in a while I'll dive in there. And you see the people who, most of the people who are sending the worst comments, you click on their link, they have zero subscribers on their YouTube channel, or 11 or 12, or 100 at most. And you're like, well, are you creating this YouTube account just to do the vitriol? And if you are, then what is your point? What is your real connection to this thing? And so you have to, and and that's the thing, we have to dive deeper into, and we're not going to do that on Cinephile Shorts because it's shorts, but like you have to dive deeper into fandom when you talk about fan service and really analyze and start doing some numbers and look at all those kinds of things and see what the actual point of fan, there are real fans. And then there are fans, quote unquote fans, which is short for fanatics. And so those are the things they have to delineate. I think there are fans and fanatics to me, in my opinion, and the fanatics cause the toxicity in any fandom. The fans want just the movie to be good or the TV show or whatever media they're supporting, just be good and be interesting and inventive and if you're going to just do something that feels like what's come before have some artistry to it that's all they want really and but the fanatics want their needs satisfied because they've tied their either emotional psychological or mental health to these franchises and they feel like uh any is it her name any wilkes in misery they feel a personal affront uh or a personal attack if you don't satisfy them in that way because they're uh, uh, they've attached way too much importance to it, something that is not real. It is a fantasy thing. Yeah. I think particularly when you talk about, you know, the trolls, yeah. the people who are just waiting to say horrible things, they're not fans. They're acting, fans act out of love. Right. You know, and like we can, I can tell you terrible episodes of Star Trek. I can tell you about how I don't sure. like the prequels, mm-hmm. you know, and I can give you my reasons, but the, but that's but I still love Star Wars. I still love right. Star Trek, and I'm certainly when I go to see a movie, I I'm not going to hate it. Right, I'm going to love it because I love the thing. And and, and what's interesting too is that we you know we just talked about Wrath of Khan. That's how we started this conversation. Yeah. And I would say in the case of both Wrath of Khan and Empire Strikes Back, which people will argue both the second film in the series, yeah. both movies that many people will argue are the greatest of the series, yes. both of them are actually real departures from what had come before. Right. They're not just serving the fans. We had never seen old Kirk. You're we right. had never seen the heaviness or the seriousness that's in Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. The love story between Han and Lola. Lola? Lola, right. <laughs> she come back of Anna, yeah. That's right. Oh she was a showgirl. <laughs> she was a showgirl. <laughs> um, and Leia, that's, <laughs> that might be my favorite yeah. weird Freudian slip of all time. <laughs> so Han and Lola. She had feathers up to here. Yeah. <laughs> um, like we'd never seen, like we'd never seen those characters like that. Yeah. You know, there's, I mean, Spock dying in Wrath of Khan is something completely different. Right. And so the idea that we just have to do the same thing, that is not true. Right. Like we, what we have to make is good movies. If the movie's good, Real fans are going to go. That was great. Yes, you know, and, and and even if they go in a direction that we've never seen before. Yeah, you know, organically, 
if organically. Fan, if fan service has to work organically within the film, the film itself does not need to have fan service for it to work. No. And that's the most essential and important thing. And that's what separates Empire Strikes Back and Wrath uh, Khan from their franchises because they do have fan service throughout the movie that is organic. Yep. That Spock moment doesn't work if you don't rekindle that relationship between Kirk and Spock throughout the movie. Yep. It doesn't. Same thing with Empire Strikes Back. That moment at the end with Luke doesn't work unless you have Luke and Vader's connection uh, uh, permeate throughout the movie, which is based in the fan. Well, and this is why I'll, I'll now compare that to two movies mm. that uh, use fan service. They take the what are arguably the most important and dramatic moments in the history of the franchise, and they try to redo them. And that's Star Trek Into Darkness, yep. which tries to redo the Spock death and reverse yep. it, and Batman v Superman, where they try to redo the Dark Knight Returns battle yeah. between Superman and Batman. And the thing that they don't understand, and it's exactly the same problem in both movies, is that the reason that it works in Wrath of Khan is because we have all the history with these characters. Yeah. We have this relationship that's built up over the entire TV series that's you know we saw rekindled in motion picture, and then we see see this death of the actors that we know and we go oh no in into darkness these are characters that just met in the last movie You're right they're kids you know and the same is too is that is that as a, as a superman fan growing up and a batman fan i have literally there's a box of world's finest comic yeah. books like 200 world's finest comic books of superman batman team-ups and that these guys are best friends and they have at that time 50 years of history in the DC universe and now they're going to fight in Dark Knight Returns in yeah. 1986 with Frank Miller and the and the whole that one of the greatest comics of all time building to that moment that moment of you know Batman saying to Superman I'm going to show you what it is to be in a man, to be a man right. and punching him is like one of the most amazing moments in the history of comics. And so you say in the second film, two guys who've never met before until right. that film, right. that we're going to duplicate that by having them fight. You can't do it. No, it's and that, yeah, and that is fan service when it doesn't work. We're just going to give the fans what they want. And now I go, that's where I go back to Steve Jobs. You don't know what you want. I'm going to tell you what you want. Right, right. <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> I think I want to thank you all for all of your support on Patreon. It means so much to us. We're really going to try to do more of these Cinephile Shorts yeah. in 2020. And uh, I think that's it for us. We'll see you next time. Hello, patrons, and welcome to Cinephile Shorts. John and I are sitting here, and we just finished recording an episode on La Bamba. So those of you who are patrons, you get a sneak peek at an episode that's coming up. And we were sitting here, we started talking about biopics, of rock biopics. Yeah. And, and they have this structure that we were talking about. And you know where... You know, what, you know what I was thinking about recently? What's that? Do you remember watching Behind the Music? Oh, yeah. I love that show. On VH1. Oh, that was the and best. And they were always the, oh, my God, it's so cool. This person, this is their life. They work so hard. They're becoming a rock star. They're getting the women and the drugs. And oh, no. Yeah, it gets and then it gets bad. really, really bad. Um, People lose arms. Yeah. Or the e- <laughs> <laughs> or the E! True Hollywood story. Oh, yeah. It's like, oh, you're going to be a fan. Oh, it's really. And this is. So here's the thing I was thinking about is that. Fame is basically bad. It's basically a terrible thing to happen to you. Uh, okay. I mean, how many people... So you've you've known some people who got famous or sure. certain levels of fame. I've known a couple of people. Mostly that doesn't... They end up being unhappy people. Mm. You know? It's a fairly distract... If you have this belief that you're special and then suddenly everyone starts telling you you're special yeah. and then they start handing you lots of money and not treating you like a normal human... Yeah. 
this is not good for us. And then when you get that taken away from you. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not always good. Yeah, agreed. Well, and you can't, you know, in the moment, I mean, I, I haven't experienced this. You haven't experienced, mm-hmm. but it's got to feel like this is how it's going to be now. Yeah. And then there's this moment where, you know, you're getting a thousand offers and, yeah, all, yeah, and then yeah, there's yeah. this moment where you can't get a gig. Right. Yeah. Are you equipped emotionally to handle the come down? That's really important because some people don't understand that it's a marathon, not a sprint. And so just because you're doing well at the beginning doesn't mean you'll do well at the end. And they don't prepare themselves for what's coming. I think nowadays that's a little easier to do. You know, I I liken it to the NBA or any sports. sports, yeah. Yeah. Like back then, people wasted their money. They made all this money and then pissed it all away, buying things or going with things, buying houses or whatever, or girlfriends or what have you. But um, nowadays, there's way more ability for financial uh, advisors to be involved from the beginning as soon as money is it comes into play and how to take care of your money, how to invest your money so that you can live off this for the rest of your life. And I think that's certainly true for fame as well if you're smart enough to get involved with the right financial advisors early on. But there's so much about it, I, <clears throat> both with sports. I mean, I know in sports that there are more and more they have classes like yes. you get into the yes. nba where they say oh you're about to do get a million dollars yeah you need to do this and learn about this and learn about investments and so on and not exactly. trust the people that are going to come to take advantage of you mm-hmm. but when you're a 20 18 year old 19 year old 23 24 25 year old person and you've been just devoting your whole life and all your energies to achieving this thing yeah how much time have you had to think about Right. You know, to be real, you're doing something that by its nature is not realistic. Yeah. You know, and so how much time you, you've, the way you've been able to keep doing it is by not listening to the people to say, be careful and don't do this. And so now suddenly you're in this position and it's, it's funny. So I grew up with some money. I didn't know when I was a kid that I, we had money mm-hmm. and my parents, I think were really good at being like, no, we can't afford that. And this is, and, and, and having very sort of having a fairly normal life i mean yeah. like we uh it's funny we just in the bomba we were talking about oh i'm not rich yeah, yeah, yeah. well that was me you know yeah. and then later on i kind of and there wasn't that much money when i was a kid and there was more money later on but one of the things my parents did was teach me about money yeah a lot there was a lot of time sitting down with my dad of like this is how you do it and how you be responsible and someone who's just sold their first big rock song and a huge yeah. flood of money comes in yeah. how the hell are they supposed to know how to deal with it right I, I had a friend whose whose mom passed away which is really sad and they sold the house and the house that they had sold had accrued a lot of value they'd owned it since like 1961 or something wow. and so they sold it and it's in california and suddenly my friend who had never always paycheck to paycheck yeah had a few hundred thousand dollars wow and it was just and I and literally called me up and he was really stressed. I mean, he was freaking out. Yeah. And he was like, What I don't I don't know how to deal with this. And and you know, it was a huge responsibility because if you only had a few thousand bucks in the bank and that was it, it you know, it's yeah. it's but this was like, oh, our whole future is dependent upon my you know, my kids education is dependent upon what me making the right choices with this thing right now. And it's like, how is some rock star who doesn't get a couple hundred thousand dollars, but a couple of million dollars supposed to deal with that? Especially in the music business where uh, promoters and and, uh, music people are studio people are trying to take your money from you. If you don't insulate yourself 
quickly in contract negotiations for that situation before it even happens. This is why Marvel hates Robert Downey Jr. to a degree because sure. he negotiated he the deal. He made a good deal. Yeah, where he if he appears as Tony Stark, he gets $50 million for whatever film he's in. And that's wonder, not Iron Man, Tony Stark. I wonder what he's doing with that money. because because Hopefully good things. Because I just have such a firm belief that nobody needs that much money. Yeah. And that you should... You know, the, the people like Warren Buffett who have said... I'm going to give away 90% yeah, of my money. Yeah. That's what I think is correct. If you're in right. the if you're in the above five or ten million dollars, yeah. if you have five or ten million dollars, you're cool. Yeah. You're gonna be good for the rest of your life. You're not gonna have any problems. If you're in the 20, 30, 40, 50 million, you should be giving 20, 30, 40, 50 million away. Yeah. That is my opinion about it. I don't have that much money. We'll see if I ever get that money <laughs> money. If I actually make the choices that I'm saying, but but like yeah. the the there's this responsibility there and and also like particularly with musicians but with actors too of you know it's called sex drugs and rock and roll yeah yeah so you're in a culture where you're you're playing your gig till late at night Mm -hmm. there's lots of booze and drugs around there's lots of sex available why would you think that people would make responsible decisions exactly i mean this is the realm of making bad choices yeah and part of the reason you want to go into rock and roll or into the isn't because you've got you know i just want to have my music it's more a matter of like you're seeking that attention you're seeking the the uh, sex drugs and rock and roll you want all of it that comes with it you know most people get into music for girls right most people get into performing of anything for girls or or boys whatever way you go and so you've got that situation going in uh, underneath it so it's like well what do you do with it once you achieve it are you prepared ahead of time and so that's where I think a lot of people need to really, uh, and I don't think the music business has gotten there yet because people oh, no. pop up all the time, become famous, and they're gone in two years, two or three years, or they have to figure out how to keep going. You know. Well, and I mean, like the one person I know, someone who became a rock star, a pretty mm-hmm. famous rock star, mm-hmm. and he, through his whole, before that, mm-hmm. had put, I'm, a, he was a depressed, unhappy person, and he went. If I could ever be famous, a famous rock star, then I would be happy. And then he became a famous rock star. And then, A, he got surrounded by a bunch of, you know, uh, hangers-on who all wanted a piece of him, who all kissed his ass. And then he went to relate to his old friends about his problems. And his old friends, who were still struggling musicians and actors and whatever... They're not all that sympathetic yeah. because they don't understand what why he's still in pain. Oh, like, yeah. look, no, you got the thing that we all want. Yeah. And so his friendships, which had been in support, though, they kind of broke down. And then he surrounded and so he ended up, I think, being you know, I saw him, it's not like we're not close friends, but mm. I saw him, you know, over the five years after he became famous, you know, every once in a while. And I think he was more depressed as a rock star yeah. than he was as a as a as a wannabe rock star. Yeah. Well, your you problems know. don't go away. No. That's the thing. If you don't handle with stuff internally before you get to a certain situation or a certain level in life, your problems just become more accentuated and bigger because you can indulge That's your vices That's just what I was going to say, yeah. And so at higher levels, and if you haven't done the proper work psychologically or, or through a psychiatrist to, to kind of come to terms to understand what you want in the world and what is what means peace to yeah. you in your world – then you're really setting yourself for failure, setting yourself up for failure. I just heard an interview with um, Moby. Yeah, Moby. He, he was on an Alec Baldwin interview. <laughs> Moby. Man, the, the the pain and craziness that that guy has gone through, and it was very clear in the interview yeah. that he wasn't going, sometimes you hear like, I'm past it, and, I'm, and he was like, I have got 
I'm here now. Yeah, yeah. But I'm still dealing with all of my right. stuff. Right. You know, like it's. And he almost got smoked for that because he started talking about his relationship with Natalie Portman, mm. which wasn't, which according to Natalie was like, we never dated. He took advantage of a 17, 18 year old girl at his age. Ugh. And he never like, you know, because the way he portrayed it as she was this young girl who came to him and he guided her and she came out in the press and said, he's lying through his teeth. Ugh. And so that blew up his shit even more. And he canceled appearances and whatever, because people were going to be asking him all about that right. shit. And so it's like that's in the me in the me too, post me too, post times up uh, movement. People have to be aware of their behavior stuck, from the yeah. past. Yeah. So if you're going to talk about something, make sure you get permission from the other person yep. before you start talking about and it. And that you check your story. Yeah. Um, and Especially I mean, a, a powerful female like Natalie Portman. I mean, honestly, checking your perceptions. Yes. Like, like, you know, I mean, honestly, you and I have done it sometimes where it's like, yeah. I said this thing and you, did you think I meant that? Or yeah. did you think I meant, oh, oh you, sure. oh, this came across like that. Oh, I'm yeah. so sorry. That never meant that, you yeah. know, cause, cause sometimes we think we're saying shit and we don't realize that we're yeah. knocking into people. Yeah. You know, um, I was thinking about, there's a, I remember watching George Clooney years and years ago on Jon Stewart mm-hmm. and they were talking about gossip because it was some time where he was the subject of something Yeah, yeah. and I don't remember what it was. And, and, and John Stewart said, well, the reason that, you know, we're so obsessed with celebrities is because we love you so much. And, and he said, Clooney said, no, no, it's because you hate us. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, like, this isn't how you treat someone you love. You're waiting for us to fail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a whole industry built around waiting for the moment that you have a bad night. Yeah. You know, that you behave in a terrible way. And then that becomes the story, the totality of you. And everybody looks at it and tries to, you know, look at your worst, saddest, mm-hmm. most painful moment and dig into that forever. And, cool. yeah. You know, and, and can you imagine? I mean, I do. <laughs> I've experienced it in the Schmodown oh. to a very, very small degree compared to Clooney, right? A certain level of celebrity as being the outlaw that people, yeah. when I initially popped on the scene, people hated me because I was a heel. But when I won the title, people started to come and be part of like the, right. the situation. Sure. But then when I started to lose or whatever, then these fan groups would come up they jump and all over jump you. all over me. They, all these people claim that, oh, you're the outlaw. You must have. No, these fan groups come up and they won't let it go. They won't let it right. They live and breathe making fun of you or making you feel terrible or saying horrible shit to you. Uh, at the same time, still watching your matches, still watching you be a part of it. I think there's a thing where that, that we, when you become the celebrity, for us, you become separated from a real person. Mm-hmm. And part of it is, is you know, it goes back to you know the, my friend who believed everything would be better when he had this thing. So now we, the ordinary people, look at the people that have the thing, yeah. and we go, well, they shouldn't have anything to complain about. Everything in their life should be good. Right. So if they are drinking too much or having a bad night or getting you know, whatever they're doing, saying a stupid thing, yeah. well then. They have no excuse, and we are fully enabled to rip them to pieces. Yeah, you know, and and this is the thing. And, and my assumption—I don't mean to speak out of turn in any way. My assumption is whatever things happen on the showdown are not actually the worst moments of your life. No, no. Can you imagine if yeah. there was a camera? I know there are things that I have said and done in bad moments. Oh yeah. Where had there been a camera? I mean, like and, and, and that I things that I regret that I got angry or that right. I was drunk or whatever it was. Okay. And and this is the thing I was thinking about as we were talking about La Bamba, because that character of Richie Valens is such a sweetheart. Yeah. And of course, he never got the chance to become a 
uh, has been or a fuck up or an alcoholic <laughs> or anything like that. And and from based on the movie, we believe that he never would. But I like maybe maybe the the, the point is is just to say like. Uh, fame ain't all it's cracked up to be. Yeah. Wealth ain't all it's that cracked up to be. And they're just humans and they could be just as messed up as you are. I yeah. guess that's the point. And the focus is, and the focus should be of your life, no matter what financial station you're in, is take care of you, work yeah. on you, figure out you so that you can handle the swings of life up or down right. when they happen yeah. to you. Yeah. So that's some wisdom we're laying down on Cinephile <laughs> Shorts. Only you, the people who are supporting the show, get to hear this. We very much appreciate all the support you've given, and we will see you next time on Cinephile Shorts.